Father, thank you that we can be still and know that you are God. Would you reveal to us this morning what kind of God you are? I don't know where each heart is at right now, but you do. Your thoughts towards us outnumber the sand of the seashore. And you are cognizant of all the trials and struggles that we've gone through over the past week and months. And you care. I pray that each heart would be touched afresh with a recognition of who you are. That you would speak to us through your word this morning. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. All right, this morning I'd like for you to uh, join me in studying a letter from Saddam Hussein. How would you guys feel about that if I said, okay, everybody pull out your Bible and uh, on page 455 there is a letter from Saddam Hussein and I would hope that you'll join me in reading this letter together because we're going to dive into this letter and we're going to find out some incredible insights from this man. Or what if instead we said, uh, how about Fidel Castro? Okay, you didn't look too excited about Saddam Hussein. Let's get a letter from Fidel Castro and, and maybe you could enjoy as we study together what Fidel Castro has to say. How many of you are excited about this? What if we said Kim Jong-un from North Korea? Let's, let's study a, a letter from the, one of the worst dictators on the planet. Maybe we could study a letter from Putin. We might learn a thing or two, supposedly. Well, today I want to invite you to open your Bibles to a letter from a king that was an incredible dictator. We talked about him last week, open up to Daniel chapter 4, and, and this is, some people say, this is the only chapter in the Bible that you'll find is written by a non-Jew, somebody that is a pagan king, or was a pagan king, we might say. Daniel chapter 4 and verse 1 reads this way, Nebuchadnezzar the king, he's penning a letter to us in scripture. He is writing to you, this is incredible, to all the peoples, nations, and languages that dwell on the earth. Remember how it started last week? What was he calling all nations, languages, and tongues, and peoples to do? To come together, to bow down to the image that represented his kingdom that would last forever and ever and ever. The golden statue on the plains of Jura. But now he's writing a letter to all peoples, all nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth. And look at what he's saying. Peace be multiplied to you. Does this sound like Nebuchadnezzar to you? It shouldn't if you've been tracking along. And if you've missed any, you can look on our YouTube channel and go through as we've been looking through the story of really Nebuchadnezzar. And, and I just want to, to highlight for you the fact that I think the first four chapters of Daniel, really, the entire story, the, the main driving drumbeat, the point is the relentless love, the, the relentless grace of a God of infinite love who won't let Nebuchadnezzar go. Peace be multiplied to you. You raging tyrant who's threatening to burn everybody. Do you remember what the things were that he was threatening in the first few chapters? We go back to Daniel chapter 2. We could go back to Daniel chapter 1 where he is castrating the people, the young nobles like Daniel that he brings, where he is robbing them of their families. He's taking the, the goods from the temple, putting it in the temple of his God, saying, my God is bigger than your God. And he is destroying Jerusalem. 
But let's go to Daniel chapter 2 and verse 5 where we find that the king answers and says to the Chaldeans who can't tell him the dream, my decision is firm. If you do not make known the dream to me and its interpretation, you shall be cut in pieces and your house shall be made an ash heap. And before long, he's sending the captain, Arioch, to go and kill everybody. Is there any hope of mercy in the way that King Nebuchadnezzar dealt with people? You guys see mercy in this? Okay, thank you. Just making sure you're, you're here today. All right. So chapter 3 and verse 6. Notice what Nebuchadnezzar says, or through the herald, he has loudly proclaimed to this crowd of people around this golden image. Whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast immediately into the midst of a burning, fiery furnace. And later he's telling Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, what God is going to save you from this burning, fiery furnace? And by the end of the chapter, he's converted, sort of, because he's saying this, Therefore I make a decree that any people, nation, or language which speaks anything amiss against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be cut in pieces, and their houses shall be, he likes this a lot, cut people in pieces, their houses shall be made an ash heap, because there is no other God who can deliver like this. This is the type of tyrant that Nebuchadnezzar is, and here he is writing a chapter in your Bible. Do you see the scandalous grace of God, what he's able to do? I hope that this will encourage you this morning because you serve a God of infinite love, a God of incredible grace who is able to save even you, even me, and even that person that you don't think he can save. Because this story happens some after Daniel chapter 3. This is the latter half of, of Nebuchadnezzar's reign. This happens some 30 or so years after the fact of what took place on the plains of Dura. And Nebuchadnezzar, we're going to find from the story, is not yet a converted man. But he's telling the story of his conversion here. Peace be multiplied to you. He wants everybody to have peace. He's finally recognized the value of the authority that God has given him. I thought it good to declare, he continues, the signs and wonders that the Most High God has worked for who? We're going to need to track along today. The Most High God has worked for? Do you remember that he said, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, the God of, of them, I want, I want for you to make sure not to say anything bad about their God. Daniel has a God who can reveal secrets. But notice, now the Most High God has become the one that works signs and miracles for him. And he's excited about them, even though the signs and miracles don't look quite like what we might expect that life would look like for a king like him. How great are his signs? How mighty are his wonders? His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and his dominion from, is from generation to generation. He's sending a letter throughout his realms to all nations, tribes, tongues, and people, and he's letting them know that the kingdom that will last forever and ever, the one who is the mighty king of kings, he is the Most High God, the God of Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So we continue on in the story and invite you to read along in the Bible or to just listen. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at rest in my house and flourishing in my palace. How did, how did Nebuchadnezzar feel at this point in time? Notice the emotions. He's at rest. He's at peace. Things are good for Nebuchadnezzar. Now, we noted in Daniel chapter 2 that, that God sends a dream to a king who's worried about the future, who's troubled, who's anxious. Now, how is Nebuchadnezzar? He has now conquered the world. At that point, he hadn't fully conquered the world, but now 
he's reigning supreme. He's in Babylon. And he's conquered, finally, Tyre, which took uh, like over a decade to conquer Tyre. He's conquered Egypt. He's conquered Assyria. He's built this incredible city. And he's enjoying the good life in his palace. Does God want us to enjoy the good life? Let's keep reading. I was at rest in my house and flourishing in my palace. I saw a dream which made me afraid and the thoughts on my bed and the visions of my head troubled me. Therefore, I issued a decree to bring in all the wise men of Babylon before me that they might make known to me the interpretation of the dream. So he brings in all of the Chaldeans, the magicians, the soothsayers. And when he brings them this time, it's a little different than Daniel chapter 2 in that he tells them what he dreamed. But still, they're unable to give him the interpretation. So finally, verse 8, But at last Daniel came before me. His name is Belteshazzar, according to the name of my God. In him is the what? The spirit of the holy God. In Daniel, there's something going on in him, something special. Now remember, he had recognized this back in the, what was that, the third year of his reign when he had that dream in Daniel chapter 2 that, that God did something special through Daniel. But now this is 30 years later. And he's still looking at Daniel and saying, I know that there's something special in you. He recognizes that there's something special about Daniel. Now notice what he says about Daniel. As he goes to tell him the dream. Oh, I, I skipped that verse. Let's, let's read it because it's important. Verse 9. Belteshazzar, chief of the magicians. Did your brain do what mine did when you read that? Sometimes we... Let's read it again. Dan, Belteshazzar, chief of the magicians. Daniel, chief of the magicians. Just go and get a concordance and look at the, the word magician. And look at, the, this is the Aramaic word, look at the cognate for that in Hebrew. And the only times you're going to find it used are for people like the magicians who Moses was battling with, with Pharaoh. <laughs> this is the type of dark side that, that all of a sudden it says, Daniel, you are the chief of all the magicians that I have. This is incredible that Daniel is able to keep his integrity, to keep faithful, and yet he is serving a pagan king in a pagan environment, serving among magicians, managing these people who use soothsaying, astrology, and all of these things. Somehow, for 30 years, he's managed to stay as chief of these people. And often as Christians, we're like, these people, we're going to stay as far away from them as we can. Not Daniel. Daniel's serving them. He's living out a, a rulership that is to be admired. He's chief of the magicians. Belteshazzar, chief of the magicians, because I know the spirit of the holy God is in you. This is the continued phrase that, that Nebuchadnezzar uses, saying the spirit of the holy God is in you. He uses this again in verse 18. And no secret troubles you. This, this tells me that over the past 30 years, Nebuchadnezzar has come to rely upon Daniel. And he knows that it, it wasn't just a happenstance that he, he got that one dream right and maybe the gods communicated with him once. But he says, Daniel, no secret troubles you. I know that, that I can count on you, if I can count on anybody, that you're going to be able to help me out. And so he goes ahead and he tells him the dream. He says, these were the visions of my head while on my bed. Verse 10, I was looking and behold a tree in the midst of the earth 
and its height was great. In the previous chapters, can you think of things that had a great height? Daniel chapter 2, there was a statue that was shown to Nebuchadnezzar in a dream that had a great height. So what did he do? He went to a plain and he made a statue that was all of gold to represent his kingdom that would last forever. And it was 90 cubits high, this massive towering statue. So you saw a tree that was of great height. The tree grew and became strong. Its height reached to the heavens and it could be seen from the ends of the earth. Verse 12, its leaves were lovely, its fruit abundant, and in it was food for how many? Food for everybody was found from this tree. The beasts of the field found what under it? This is a beautiful picture. This is a massive tree that that gives food to all, that shelters the beasts that are hot in the sun. The birds of the heavens dwelt in its branches. It has such big branches that, that spread out that the birds are able to make nests in its branches. And all flesh was fed from it. And this is a beautiful picture of the nourishment that is happening from this tree. The, the whole world is coming to this tree and being fed from its branches or finding a home in its branches or finding shelter in its branches. Isn't this a beautiful picture of what this tree was like? How many of you would like to find a tree like this? It would be pretty incredible. Well, so this tree is in the midst of the earth and it, it, all people are, are, are coming to it. Verse 13, I saw in the visions of my head while on my bed and there was a watcher, a holy one, coming from heaven. He cried aloud and said, Chop down the tree and cut off its branches. Cut this tree down, this beautiful tree. Strip off its leaves and scatter its fruit. Let the beast get out from under it. We get this incredible picture that this tree is to be chopped down. But notice that in this announcement of judgment, the judgment is not a final judgment. It's a judgment that is mixed with mercy. Verse 15, nevertheless, leave the stump and roots in the earth, bound with a band of iron and bronze in the tender grass of the field. There's judgment coming for this tree, but the judgment is not final because this tree will still be there. There'll be a band of iron around it and it will continue to have roots in the grass of the field. It's a picture that this tree was going to experience judgment, but not come to an end. Let it be wet with the dew of heaven and let them graze with the beasts on the grass of the earth. Let his heart, now it's turning to a a person, so we recognize that this is a, a dream about a person. Let his heart be changed from that of a man Let him be given the heart of a beast. We're going to find in in, in Daniel chapter 7 that that this is going to be an interesting tie. And let seven times pass over him. This decision is by the decree of the watchers and the sentence by the word of the holy ones. Now notice why it is. In order that the living may know that the what? Let's say that together. The most high rules. In the kingdom of men. This is going to be the other phrase that's repeated three times in this chapter. And if you count when it says heaven rules, it's repeated four times. This is the the main point of what God wants Nebuchadnezzar to understand. Is that the most high rules. But what's really important is how does the most high rule? We can recognize that he's the king of kings, that he's the Lord of lords, but how does he rule? And we begin to recognize this in the story. And he gives it to whomever he will. 
He's the omnipotent one. He has all authority, and he gives the kingdom to whomever, whomever he wants. And who is it that he wants to rule over his kingdoms? And sets over it the what? The lowest of men. The, the word for, for the humblest of men. It's not a, not a word that's flattering. He sets over it the humblest, the lowest of men. This is who God chooses to rule over the kingdoms that he gives. And this is not who Nebuchadnezzar is turning out to be. But that's how God wants it to be. And this, this doesn't sound like how we tend to picture kingdoms working today. I may have told you the story about one day I, I went and I knocked on a door of somebody that, that wanted to have Bible studies and we began to discuss the election that was happening. And as we discussed the election that was happening, he wanted to tell me about his favorite candidate. And this is a number of years back. And as he listed off, it, I thought, well, I'll, I'll ask him about somebody within the same party that seems a lot nicer than that guy. I said, so what do you think about this guy? He's like, oh, no. Oh, no. That guy, he is way too weak. He doesn't have what it takes. We tend to picture that we need somebody strong. We need somebody with an iron fist, somebody that will dominate and control the others because there are bad people out there and we have to get rid of them. But Jesus or I should say God says he sets over it the lowest, the humblest of men. You wonder the thoughts that are going through Nebuchadnezzar's mind as he's listening to this. He has to have a little bit of a premonition that this isn't going to favor well for him. And maybe that's why the wise men are unwilling or unable to give him the interpretation. Maybe they only wanted to flatter him and weren't willing to, to give the full interpretation of the dream. But as Daniel is, comes forward... To give the interpretation of the dream, verse 19 says, Then Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, was astonished for a time. And his thoughts troubled him. So the king spoke and said, Belteshazzar, do not let the dream or its interpretation trouble you. Belteshazzar answered and said, My lord, may the dream concern those who hate you, and its interpretation concern your enemies. Did you catch that? This beautiful picture of, of, of Daniel who, think of all that he's been through. We've, been, we've talked about this. What are some of the things that Daniel has experienced at the hand of Nebuchadnezzar? Captivity. What else? He's been castrated. No hope of a future family. What else? Been taken away from his family. What about how has Nebuchadnezzar treated his God and his temple? He's taken the implements from his temple and placed them in his own temple. And now when it comes time to share truth, do you like to share truth? Some of us do, some of us don't. Daniel has important truth to share, and he gets to share it with a guy that's not been very nice to him. He gets to share it with a guy who limited his chance of ever having children, took that away from him, who took him away from his own family, who tried to brainwash him to idolatry, who took the implements from the temple in Jerusalem and put them in the temple of his God. This is the guy that he gets to talk to and he finally gets to tell him, look, you're done for. This is it, buddy. You're going to be cut down. That's what this dream means. But instead he says, oh king, I wish that this dream had to do with your enemies. I wish it had to do with those who hate you. 
It's no wonder that Nebuchadnezzar knew that the Spirit of God was within Daniel. You see, the Spirit of God always bears fruit on the outside, the fruit of love and joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. It leads us to love our enemies. Daniel said, I wish that this was for your enemies and not for you. But then he goes on to say, it is you in verse 20. 22, it is you, O king, who have grown and become strong, for your greatness has grown and reaches to the heavens, and your dominion to the end of the earth. That's a good part. But then he goes on to say in verse 24, this is the interpretation of the tree being cut down, O king, and this is the decree of the Most High, which has come upon my Lord the king. They shall drive you from men. Your dwelling place shall be with the beasts of the field, and they shall make you eat grass like oxen. They shall wet you with the dew of heaven, and seven times will pass over you till you know that the Most High rules in the kingdom of men and gives it to whomever he chooses. Thankfully, it doesn't stop there. Remember the stump with the band around it that's still there in the field, that still has roots Because verse 26 says, And inasmuch as they gave the command to leave the stump and roots of the tree, your kingdom shall be, what? What? Nebuchadnezzar is finally, how many chances does the guy get? Daniel chapter 1, Daniel chapter 2, Daniel chapter 3. When does God just finally say, okay, Nebuchadnezzar, you're done for? This is a picture of relentless grace, of a God is pursuing Nebuchadnezzar. If there's any hope that Nebuchadnezzar will repent, God is going to give him another chance. Unlike Nebuchadnezzar, when, when people didn't do what he wanted, didn't tell him the dream, they were going to die. When his chief uh, was, was asked to give a different diet to his people, uh, to, to the Hebrews, he said, I can't do that. My king will cut my head off. He's the one in Daniel chapter 3 that told the, well, he did give the three Hebrews another chance, didn't he? But it was a chance that was gone in an instant when they said, no, we're not going to bow down. And he said, then you're going to be burned. Heat the furnace seven times hotter. Worship or burn. It's not the picture of how God rules. Your kingdom shall be assured to you after you come to know That heaven rules. And how does heaven rule? (laughs) With relentless grace. With a a constant, continual pursual until every door, every avenue has been pursued in somebody's heart. Even somebody like Nebuchadnezzar. The stump will still be there. Its roots will still be there. Nebuchadnezzar had a lot to think about. As he heard this dream, and you wonder what thoughts were going through his mind. But Daniel didn't stop here. He had to give him a picture that, in fact, there was a chance for repentance. There was a chance that that this tree didn't have to be cut down. And this tree that was feeding all nations, that that was to be there nourishing people and giving shade and providing a a shelter, a nest for people to, 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 for birds to make their, their, their nest in. Daniel gives Nebuchadnezzar a key. He says this in verse 27. Therefore, O king, let my advice be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by being, what's that word? Righteous. Break off your sins by by being righteous. Another word for this is to say in right relationship with God and with other people. 
right relationship. Faithfulness in your relationships and your iniquities by now, if he's going to get specific, of all things that he would get specific, notice what he says. And your iniquities by showing mercy to the poor. You see, this, this reveals to us that, that there's something wrong with Nebuchadnezzar's government. There's something that has gone incredibly wrong. And that is that, another word for the poor there is oppressed. Nebuchadnezzar has begun to oppress people. He's become a, a tyrannical leader. He's become oppressive. He has, as we saw with Jerusalem, gone and taken the wealth of other nations in order to bring it to Babylon and to build these beautiful golden edifices. In order to build this incredible city, he's robbed nation and he's reduced people's houses to ashes like he liked to do. And Daniel's solution is start being merciful to the poor. But this is just Daniel. How about Jesus? When the rich young ruler comes and he says, you know what? What you need is to sell what you have and give to the poor. There's something about opening up our hearts to others. Others who are in need. Others who don't have what we have. Others who we have the ability to benefit. That changes us. That could have changed Nebuchadnezzar and saved him from the impending doom. If you look up righteousness, here's a fun thing to do this afternoon. Look up righteousness in the Torah and look at when it appears. In righteousness, one of the times that's first few times that it's used in the Torah, it's used to describe a man who has received a coat from somebody else as a pledge. And it says, if you've received a coat from somebody and it comes to nighttime and you know that that person is going to be cold at night, even though it's your right to keep that coat, take that coat to that person so they're not cold at night because this will be righteousness for you. Even though I have the rights, even though I have the privileges, even though I have the wealth to realize that somebody else needs something and I'm going to reach out to them, I'm going to do whatever it takes to extend myself, this was the solution to the prideful king's arrogance. If only he listened. Daniel said, perhaps there may be a lengthening of your prosperity. Turn and look to the poor. Look to the oppressed. Stop using them to build up your massive, beautiful city. Stop. You know, here's the thing. Think about it like this. If I were to go and buy a Ferrari, and I pulled up to church in a Ferrari, you would know that there's something wrong with a pastor, because that just doesn't happen with pastors, right? So I pull up into the, the parking lot with a Ferrari. In order for that to happen... Number one, I would have had to majorly neglect my family. But in order to have a Ferrari, which is, you know, I, I use a Ferrari because I don't think anybody here has a Ferrari. Um, <laughs> it's to attract attention, I would assume, and to drive really fast, I guess, to go to racetracks and stuff like that. But it would be for me to build my pride. Well, look at what I'm able to afford. Look at what I'm able to have. Look at this quality of car and how fast it drives. And would it be that wrong? I mean, why would God care that much? Except for the fact that what could I have done with all of that money? What could I have done to benefit the poor, to benefit those in need, to benefit those who are helpless, who don't have what I have? And time and time again, we see that the God who had it all and stepped down and became a baby and lived his life to give and to serve, he invites us to watch out for the needs of others, to do unto others as we'd have others do unto us, and thus to fulfill the entire law 
and the prophets. Nebuchadnezzar has a lot to think about. This picture of a tree that nourishes, that, that cares for, that provides shade, that provides a place for, brand, for birds to rest. Manuscript releases, volume 3 describes this tree like this. It says, in the dream of Nebuchadnezzar, the true object of what? Of government is beautifully represented by the great tree. Who is Daniel talking to? He's not talking to some priest. He's not talking to some Hebrew. He's not talking to a religious person. Well, he was sort of religious, but he's talking to him as the king of kings, the one that is the authority, the, the head of the, the greatest superpower on earth. And talking to the guy who is head of the greatest superpower on earth, what is the concern that Daniel has? Ministered, be merciful to the poor. In the dream of Nebuchadnezzar, the true object of government is beautifully represented by the great tree. That representation of the tree shows the only kind of ruling acceptable to him. The only type of person that he's willing to put in rulership. A government that protects, restores, relieves, but never savors of oppression. The poor especially are to be kindly treated. Here's this commentary on this chapter to recognize that, hey, there is an importance for a government to protect, to restore, to relieve, to never savor of oppression, to make sure that the poor are kindly treated. Aid is to be given to the oppressed, and not one soul that bears the image of God is to be placed at the footstool of a human being. Now, you and I well, I don't see any politicians here. <laughs> I don't see many people here that get to, thankfully, get, get, no, I shouldn't say that. I love some people, politicians. We should pray for all of our politicians, put it that way. But all of us have rights over somebody else, have, have, have some sort of, of gifts that somebody else doesn't have. And in essence, we have some sort of rulership, be it within our own families, be it in our neighborhood, be it at our job, be it at our workplace, in our relationships. And how we use the authority that God has given us is crucially important. What is this? What is this called? The Statue of Liberty. Have you ever heard of the other name of this statue? Anybody heard it? What was it? Lady Liberty, Diana, anything else? There's one more. Maybe more than one more. Mithra. All right, so when they were, I'm not, I'm not talking about maybe the roots of it, but, but names that people actually call it today. In fact, that you'll find if you go in there today. Um, you go in there, you're going to find written a name for this statue. And it was written by a lady named Emma Lazarus. Emma Lazarus, as she wanted to raise money to have a pedestal built for what we call Lady Liberty, the Statue of Liberty. And she wrote these words, Here at our Siwash Sunset Gate shall stand a mighty woman with a torch. Here we are at Mother's Day weekend, and, and I want you to think for a moment about this incredible symbol of our nation that was placed Right there at the gates of the United States of America, a woman, a mighty woman with a torch whose flame is the imprisoned lightning and her name, Mother of Exiles. You'll find this on a plaque inside of the, the pedestal of the Statue of Liberty. Or we could call her the Mother of Exiles. From her beacon hand glows worldwide welcome. 
Give me your tired, your poor, your huddled masses yearning to breathe free, the wretched refuse of your teeming shore. Send these, the homeless, tempest-tossed to me. I lift my lamp beside the golden door. It's this beautiful picture. Let the United States of America be like a tree that is nourishing those who are in desperate need. And this is the picture in the Bible that, that God wants for Nebuchadnezzar to become. Have mercy on the poor. You have power over this planet? Then look for those who are oppressed. Look for those who have less than you and minister to their needs. She's using, it's called the new Colossus. This is the Colossus of Rhodes. I had to implement his clo- uh, augment his clothing a little bit. Um, <laughs> she's playing on this powerful man statue figure that was used to, to give this idea of a nation that conquers. But you see, God rules in a different way. He rules sometimes more like, you might say, a mother of exiles. Like a hen who's desperately wanting to gather her chicks, if only they will come under her wings. This Mother's Day weekend, may you know that the God of heaven... There's something special about mothers in the way that they are relentless in their love for their kids. And it comes from the heart of God. That's how he rules even despotic kings like Nebuchadnezzar. Daniel says, have mercy on the poor. Maybe this will avert the coming judgment. Well, for the next 12 months, he has the opportunity to do that. He has the opportunity to turn, and at first, it seems that maybe he did, but before long, he became more oppressive than ever. And as he's there in Babylon, this beautiful city that he created, it was a a massively beautiful city. He's on the veranda of his palace, and he says, says, verse 30, the king spoke, saying, is not this great Babylon that I have built for a royal dwelling by my mighty power and for the honor of my majesty. It's about me. You see, the problem with pride is that it causes us to pull in and to get all the resources for ourselves. And the solution, the solution is not to think less of ourselves as much as it is to think more about others. Nebuchadnezzar built an incredible city that the excellence, some say, that has not been surpassed to this day. One of the seven wonders of the ancient world, we've tried to figure out exactly what it was like, is called the Hanging Gardens. One of the seven most wonderful things in the ancient world. These beautiful gardens that they say he, he built for this, I think it was, was it a queen or princess who missed the hill country that she came from in media. And so he wanted to satisfy his wife, and so he built this incredibly beautiful gardens. He was known more for his building than for his conquering. He had built incredibly beautiful uh, things of, of gold and, and temple. The temple of Marduk, the, the altar of Marduk had all this incredible amount of gold in it. But as he's there saying, is this not Babylon that I have created? Is this not Babylon that, that is for the glory of my majesty? While the word was still in the king's mouth, the voice fell from heaven. King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken. The kingdom has departed from you, and they shall drive you from men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. They shall make you eat grass with oxen, and seven times shall pass over you until you know that the Most High rules in the kingdom of men and gives it to whomever he chooses." That very hour, the word was fulfilled concerning Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from men and ate grass like an oxen. His body was wet with the dew of heaven till his hair had grown like eagle's feathers and his nail like 
birds, his nails like birds' claws. There's actually, um, well, we see here that the way down is up. Nebuchadnezzar said, I'm going to do this. I'm going to build Babylon. This is about me. And he ends up being taken to the lowest level of degradation, something um, that we've recently found evidence for. There's a tablet in the British Museum of Babylonian cuneiform that says this about Nebuchadnezzar. It's broken up a little bit, so we don't have all the words, but these are some of the words that come through on the tablet. His life appeared of no value to him. Then he gives an entirely different order. He does not show love to son or daughter. For a long time, the historian said, no, 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 this didn't happen to Nebuchadnezzar. There's so many tablets we have about him and but then they found this tablet in the late, I think it was the 1980s. They found this tablet and it's now in the British Museum showing that Nebuchadnezzar had something go wrong in his kingdom. He wasn't even able to show love to his son or daughter. It's called something that we've actually seen. Boanthropy is where a person becomes insane to the level where they think that they're an ox and they eat grass. Or lycanthropy can be where they think that they're like a wolf or any other type of wild creature. There's Psychologists have actually documented these and seen cases of these things actually happening. But I find it fascinating from psychology today, Leon Seltzer, who has a PhD in in psychology, he says, from a variety of phobic anxiety and obsessive compulsive impairments to many depressive disturbances to various addictions to post-traumatic stress disorder and to most of the personality disorders, self-absorption can be seen as playing a major role. Did you say that Nebuchadnezzar was self-absorbed? Yeah. You see all these things? Uh, Phobias, anxieties, obsessive-compulsive impairments, depressive disturbances, various addictions can be linked in some form. Not not that that's always the cause, but self-absorption can be seen as playing a major role. So he goes on to say, so any effective treatment of these dysfunction needs to include significantly reducing these obsessively self-centered tendencies. Daniel wants to stop Nebuchadnezzar from going insane. He wants to stop from the judgment of God coming upon him, the judgment that was fully mingled with mercy. And so he tells him, to focus somewhere else. Therefore, King, let my advice be acceptable. We break off your sins by being righteous and your iniquities by showing mercy to the poor. Look somewhere else than to yourselves. This past week, oh, actually it was an elders meeting. We were talking about self and how that can become such an issue in our lives. And my dad said something that was insightful to me. He said, you know, we can talk about not focusing on self. But the reality is, we've got to begin to focus, I don't remember the words exactly, I should have, should have re-asked him, but we, we, we can just talk about self or we can talk about focusing other places. Because if I just begin to think about how terrible I am, if I just begin to, to think about what my problems are, that in and of itself can be prideful, it can actually be self-focused, it can be self-absorption. Notice that Daniel points Nebuchadnezzar outside of himself, to somewhere else. Ken Blanchard said it this way, don't think less of yourself. Just think of yourself less. Don't think less of yourself. Jesus, it says that he was meek and lowly. He was the meek and lowly one. Did Jesus have anything less to think about himself? Did he have to think, well, I'm a terrible person? That's not humility. Jesus came and all he could do was constantly minister to people. In fact, he healed more than he ever preached. 
Because he was there nourishing people. He was demonstrating what this tree of life should look like. And then in Mark chapter, or Matthew chapter 13, he tells people, the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed that's planted, and it grows up to become a great tree. The birds find their nests in its branches. This is what the kingdom of heaven is like, the way that Jesus lived his life. And so Daniel says, be merciful to the poor. Well, at the end of those seven years, verse 34, at the end of the time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven and my understanding returned to me and I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever and ever. Would, would that be your reaction? Seven years of eating grass? God had told you this was going to happen and you go insane and your hair grows like eagle's feathers. You've got big dreadlocks. Your nails are so long. You're dirt in your fingernails. And then suddenly your reason returns to you and you realize God was right. Would you bless the Most High? <laughs> Nebuchadnezzar blessed the Most High and praised and honored Him who lives forever and ever. The one who has a kingdom that never ends. Notice, for His dominion is an everlasting dominion. And His kingdom is from generation to generation. He recognized something. God's kingdom is a different type of kingdom. Nebuchadnezzar wanted to set up a kingdom by force. A kingdom where He could control people. You either obey me or you burn. But God said, no. What your kingdom needs to look like is really how I've treated you. Think about how God has pursued him with chance after chance after chance. And here you have God giving him another chance and then restoring the kingdom fully to him. Think about how, what did the plains of Dura, what was some of the impetus that led people to bow down? If I was in that crowd and there's thousands of people there and there's loud music playing, it's a public venue with people bowing down, there's major peer pressure to yield how does God show up to Nebuchadnezzar? In dreams, at night, in his bed, in a private setting. He treats him with the respect. You know, sometimes we like to rebuke somebody in front of everybody else to let them know that what they're doing is terrible. But God knew that the way you deal with a prideful person is to go to them in secret and to say, please, I want to give you mercy. I want to help you out here. Here's the truth. And, and I'll send my servant Daniel who'll say, I wish that this was for your enemies. And I'm, I'm going to restore the kingdom afterwards, but please listen to me. You've got to take your focus off yourself and be merciful to those in need around you. Become like this tree. God's kingdom is a different kind of kingdom. We learned that in Daniel chapter 2. It's a rock, not a statue graven by hands. It's going to crush all of the kingdoms because every idea of how government should operate throughout human history will be done away with. Every idea of how a person should govern their own life will be done away with forever. Prophets and Kings says this, the once proud monarch had become a humble child of God. The tyrannical, overbearing ruler, a wise and compassionate king. Isn't that beautiful? Nebuchadnezzar has a chapter in the Bible because he had become a humble child of God. Nebuchadnezzar had learned at last the lesson which all rulers need to learn, that true greatness consists in true goodness. But he wasn't just left at that. At the same time, my reason returned to me, and for the glory of my kingdom, my honor and splendor returned to me. He gets it all back. God gives it back to him. This guy who's so prideful, who said, isn't this my glory and my Babylon that I've created? 
My counselors and nobles resorted to me, and I was restored to my kingdom. Is that an incredibly gracious God? It gets better than that. Look at what it goes on to say. An excellent majesty was added to me. He says, now that you've been humbled, now that you've realized the way up is down, now that you've gone to the lowest place, I'm going to give you even greater glory. (laughs) I'm going to allow you to become an even greater leader. An excellent majesty was added to me. That is how good our God is. So Nebuchadnezzar goes on to say, now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven, all of whose works are truth and his ways justice. That word there is for judgment. The name Daniel, God is my judge. He recognized that that God is on his side, that God is his judge in a good way, that he wants to bring judgment that brings transformation of heart. And those who walk in pride, he is able to put down. The good news is, even if you've been choosing the way up, And realizing that that leads you down, God has a way of taking you down so that he can lift you back up again because he's that gracious and he's that good. And so Nebuchadnezzar said, peace be multiplied to you. He wanted to become that king that nourished all nations, that blessed everyone, that was merciful to the poor. God's calling us to the same thing. You know, in my life, I've come to recognize that I can focus in in a myopic focus like Like Nebuchadnezzar, as a pastor, it's not tempting to me to go out and buy a Ferrari, to build some massive palace that that the world will know me by. It's just not even possible for me. But it is tempting to begin to focus myopically on my own spirituality, to think that I need to build and manufacture something in myself that, that will somehow get me to heaven. I become like the Pharisees who are tithing the mint and the cumin, taking off the leaves. And not that I should neglect those things, but I, in the process, am neglecting the weightier matters of the law, mercy and justice. I'm straining out a gnat while I'm swallowing a camel. I just want to tell you, the way to be transformed from this chief sin of pride and selfishness is to focus outward, to be merciful to those in need around you, to see how you can help this hurting world. And this past week, I remember walking in the door one evening saying, I, I don't know how to handle it. There's just too much going on. There's people among you that have lost your loved ones just in the past week and a half. There's, there's my friend who got finally into a, a, a um, addiction facility down in Southern California after he was homeless for four days having gone on a meth trip that was crazy. There's other friends that I'm texting who are in need and trouble. There's some of you that I talked on the phone who are just going through mental grief and trauma. There's, there's those of you that are dealing with health crisis. And this is just within our own church family, let alone it hit me how many people are in need out there And as I begin to recognize the need of the world, I begin to recognize the need of human beings, suddenly I don't have time for the things that distracted me from Jesus. Suddenly I don't even care anymore. I'm not worried about overeating because I barely have enough time to take care of my kids, (laughs) to make sure that we're there to help people. I'm not myopically focused on building up my righteousness because I'm able to simply recognize I've got to help this hurting world. And so... I just want to appeal to you in this. There's the bulletin. Take and write a carrying card. It's a small start. There's a whole list of people here. 
that are hurting, that need you. Come and bring it back next week and put it in the, the, the uh, mailbox in the lobby. Send a text message to somebody. Call somebody. There are people that I feel like I have to text pretty much every day or their lives might fall apart. Thankfully, I know that the Holy Spirit's bigger than that. But there are so many people in need. And I'm just pleading with you as a pastor, I can't do it all. And thank you that you're not a church that makes me. But there are so many people in need that need you. And it's not about building up your own righteousness. If you begin to focus on the needs and wants of others and directing them to Jesus and helping their hurting needs like Jesus did, it will transform your life completely and totally. You will not be the same person. Self will disappear as you lose sight of it. In looking to the needs of others, in looking to Jesus, who is in the least of these. Let's pray to close. Father, thank you. We've had an incredible worship. We've been reminded of how much you love us through children this morning. And Father, we've just read a chapter written by one of the craziest dictators in history. And you changed him. And Father, there may be somebody here that needs that change. Would you encourage them that you can do it in them too? Maybe there's somebody here that's not sure you could ever change their neighbor, their child, their grandchild. Would you help them to continue being a faithful witness like Daniel was? Would you fill them with the Holy Spirit? May the Spirit of the Holy God be in them. So they can be a witness like Daniel was to Nebuchadnezzar. And Father, may all of us turn our eyes off of ourselves and see the need in the world around us and recognize Jesus in the least of these. Thank you. Thank you that one day we expect to sit down next to Nebuchadnezzar at the wedding supper of the Lamb. What an incredible reality that this despotic leader was changed by your mercy and grace. Father, may our hearts be open to you and may we choose righteousness, a breaking from our sins. May we choose mercy to the poor. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen.